Hello and welcome to the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast. I'm your host Ben Porter and I am joined this Independence Day by Peter Hopkins and Frank Brinkley of the Drawn to the Flame Podcast. How are we doing, gents? Hi, Ben. It's Peter here. Peter and Frank. This is Frank. Hello. 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 We're all here. <laughs> all present and correct. So, um, without further ado, let's uh, let's dive right into it. Drawn to the Flame. How did that come about? Oh, well, this, this is a fun story. Uh, we, we met on... So, in all the years Arkham has been going, which is two years now, is that right, Frank? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, 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 two. Uh, there's only really been two big podcasts for it, and I think another one started up fairly recently. Uh, but the, the main guys are the Mythos Busters guys, and they've, they did uh, uh, Lord of the Rings card game podcast together. Sure. And when Arkham was announced, they set up this Discord server, and I was on there chatting to people, found another player who was in the UK who seemed to be pretty cool and liked a lot of my decks. Spoiler. Uh, and that was Frank. That was me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was kind of funny, actually, those early days, because someone set up an official Arkham Horror Discord server, but the Mythos Busters, because they had all these followers from Lord of the Rings and things like that, everyone immediately gravitated over to their Discord server, which is normally about their podcast, but really became the kind of Discord hub for the game. So I I remember the point when the Arkham Horror server shut down in a bit of a huff because the guy who ran it was like, oh, (laughs) no one talks here enough. Everyone's just on the Mythos Busters and they like shut down that server. But yeah, we we just ended up chatting on there, didn't we, originally? We're both fans of their podcast. Yeah, and and we we had some friends in common as well because we used both used to play Netrunner. So some of my friends had played in London where Frank had played and, you know, sort of, you know, we knew the same group of people from different directions. Sure. Yeah. And we just thought to ourselves, there's, there's a window there for... Something a bit like I don't know whether you've Netrunner fans, but the um, Run Last Click were one of the British podcasts for that, and they had you know in my mind it was always we were doing something a bit similar to those you know topics around the game, fairly light-hearted and fairly short episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was I was going to say um, when you were talking about um, how you met another player from the UK, it would have been really embarrassing if you'd mentioned someone other than Frank. So, oh, yeah, <laughs> particularly as I said, spoiler, it was me. If it turned out to be, yeah, someone else. Yeah. <laughs> with the egg on our faces all round. Yeah. 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 Well, and I was just going to say, and one of, the, one of the challenging things about a game that's a cooperative game, which Arkham Horror is, is that there isn't the competitive scene where you might be meeting people sort of outside of your local group. So actually, sure. any way that you've met someone online that you talk to about the game it is kind of a fluke that we ended up talking about the game and then said we wanted to do a podcast just because we hadn't played together, we didn't know each other. It's all a little bit odd. Yeah, it's, it's a fair point because with co-op games, everyone's default is they, they just generally grab someone they game with regularly, don't they? Yeah. Whereas with the competitive games, I mean, we are talking before we came on the show about Warhammer Underworlds. Some of the more serious players for that go... Um, up and down the country going to tournaments and events for that. Yeah, and, and I used to do that for Netrunner. So I, I went down to um, nationals and Euros and you know regionals all around the country and met this massive group of people playing that game. But yeah, yeah. it's one of the things we've always, we've talked about a few times, Frank and I, about uh, it's a shame there's not 
there's these invocation kits that FFG have done for Arkham Horror, but there's there's nothing really structured in place. Uh, which I know, finally, Games Workshop are starting to get their heads around uh, in house with uh, the various tournament packs they're putting out. I noticed the other week they put out tournament pack for Kill Team. Yeah, which has got some cool swag in there, uh, and it's great to see those guys doing it. But uh, FFG don't seem to have done that really with with Arkham Horror so much yet. Yeah, and it's weird because they, they they do so much of that sort of thing for um, Game of Thrones. The organised play for that is is huge. And, and uh, Legend of Five Rings as well. Yeah, that's true. Totally forget about that. That's the uh, it's the the new kid on the block, as it were. But um, mm-hmm. as you say. Um, they do the stronghold events for that, don't they? And they, they seem to pull in the crowds. And L5R, Legend of the Five Rings, that, that's a game where the players can really influence the story and influence cards that are created in the game. And they really care about tournament results and things like that. It, you actually have an impact. And you'd think that in a story-led game like Arkham, there'd maybe be room for that or scope for that. They're just starting to dip their toe in kind of actually having players affect the world and i think it's crying out for it it's so ripe for that to be a a a cool thing that they could do and that would engage even more players that your adventures sort of matter well i'm i'm even thinking um like the you guys have heard of pandemic survival right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so that so pandemic's obviously a a co-op game as well but with pandemic survival what it does is it pits teams against one another by having them each play through um, the the same scenario with the the, the same epidemic cards, like the, their their decks are set up in the exact same way, and they they're all playing the through the game alongside one another, and that uh, presents the competitive element is how successfully each team approaches the same scenario. So, you know, you've got. Um, like in Arkham, you've got the the victory points at the end, right? So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, that yeah. that's one way of doing something like that. So it, it's the kind of thing that you could rework into a competitive event, couldn't you? Yeah, and, yeah. and I've seen some people throwing around ideas with particular scenarios, like the the second scenario in the in the core campaign, the what the campaign you get in the core set. You're you're running around interrogating cultists in Arkham itself, and it, it, there's a way of turning that into. Uh, a race against another team to see who can interview more people before the clock. Oh yeah, definitely. But then again, maybe that's not the kind of thing people want. And I know there's been a lot of talk. Some of the the key figures in the Netrunner community had started feeling out these ideas of what would organized play look like that wasn't uh, a a competition. So is there a way of getting people together and getting them to do stuff that doesn't involve playing against another person? Uh, because you find that tournaments tend to attract the kind of people who like going to tournaments. And the thing that surprised yeah. Frank and I is that there's a very large silent player base for Arkham. I think there's mm-hmm. a in games like Netrunner, which is where I've got most of my competitive play experience, there's a very vocal group of people who will go to all the tournaments, who you play against a lot and you, you know them. But you don't ever see sight of these... Yeah, I guess the far larger group of people who just sit around their kitchen tables playing it, and I don't know. Uh-huh. You, you'll you'll probably agree with me here, Frank, that we've we've had a lot of emails and stuff from people that just aren't connected to a community of game players at all. I'm nodding vigorously at this side, like ab- absolutely. <laughs> and the messages we get from people 
which might sound like us blowing our own trumpet, but I don't think it is, just saying things like, I love your podcast, it's opened my eyes to playing this game in a way I wouldn't have thought of doing it. And that, obviously, we wanted to share our love of the game with people, but also this idea that we might be the only point of contact for someone to think about the game in in a it's way possible, sort yeah. of separate from their kitchen table. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they might not be on the Discord or Facebook or Board Game Geek or all of these other places, these fragmented communities online that just might not be in their wheelhouse. They might not be interested in going and trawling through all the questions on Facebook for more information. So if we if we tick the box for them, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you guys have mentioned um, quite a few of the other living card games. Is it fair to say that, um, that prior to Arkham Horror coming on the scene that you guys were already invested or plugged into that um, particular circuit of gaming? Yeah, I... Uh, I probably was less plugged into Netrunner than Peter was. I'd been to a couple of tournaments and had a few friends I played with, but I had the good fortune, I suppose, of being in London where the Netrunner scene is kind of huge. So there were always a lot of people playing and I was probably only ever semi-competitive. But I also have friends who had Netrunner and maybe didn't collect any of the cards, but we would still play. So Netrunner was my way into living card games. And I played a fair bit of it. And then I'd also played Lord of the Rings, the co-op card game we mentioned. Yeah. But I'd only ever bought one one cycle of it. It was about five cycles in when I got into it. And I bought one cycle and enjoyed it. But I never kind of really got the bug. I think I looked at how many cards were out there and just thought, I'm never going to catch up with this. I can't afford to catch up with this. Uh, Lord of the Rings as well, like many of the LCGs, they expect you to buy three core sets to have a full play set of the core set cards. And that, to me, I just thought, gosh, it's a massive investment. So I sort of, I was like desperate for that co-op experience, but didn't mind the LCG model and was waiting for a a game I could dip my toe into or dive into more fully, which Arkham came along at the right time. That's such a great point about the... um... The, the 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 sheer volume of content that was out for for Lord of the Rings because I think that that's kind of what prevented me from investing in that more fully because even though the the living card game model is designed to be um, more digestible, you get to a certain point where um, where you're so far into a game's lifespan that you you're just overwhelmed by the amount of stuff. Yeah, there. I think it's, yeah. it's it's a yeah. it's a problem. FFG don't have the answer to yet. If if I'm being honest. Because it, it sounds very good in theory, yeah. but you know, try saying that to a new player uh, who's who walks into the shop and sees like you know twenty or thirty packs up on the wall there, uh, and they're like, yeah. "How do I get all yeah. of these?" And especially with Arkham, because you need to buy them all in order. Unless you want to buy in at a new cycle, yeah. So at the start of cycle four for Arkham, that be your your entry point. But then the onus is really on the designers, on Matt Newman, who's the lead developer of Arkham, to make sure that cycle four is as accessible as cycle one and that brings its own challenges you know all the hardcore players who have all of the player cards for the last three cycles want a new challenge they Mm. don't want it to be vanilla and yeah it's really tricky yeah but um sorry um peter that um that same question to you then about the um the the living card games um you've mentioned netrunner quite a bit you you 
played a, a few of the other living card games I take it prior to coming to I, I didn't actually know um, I, I dabbled in a couple okay. um, Conquest was the other one that I played a bit of having had a background when I was much younger in Games Workshop games that's the 40k card game right uh, yeah R.I.P. in peace um, yeah. and actually <laughs> my, my regular <laughs> partner for playing that uh, he's I think he's infamous in, in living card game circles a guy called Evan uh, who lives up in Edinburgh, and he came... I, I played him a bunch of times, and I only ever won one game, but then he went on to kind of come third at Worlds. So uh, okay. that was my experience of playing Conquest, was being repeatedly smashed by one of the best players in the world. Um, <laughs> but it, I found it, it, it filled the same space in my life that Netrunner was filling up. So it, it yeah. didn't really work around the stuff I was doing. Um, I, I played a little bit of the second edition of Game of Thrones, but not not a huge amount. But um, yeah. I started getting kind of back into board games really about maybe seven or eight years ago. And my friend had picked up the Netrunner core set not long before I was moving to Edinburgh. And I got really into it in those, in those couple of months when I was still living down in England. And I went to one of the tours they did. It was the Kronos Protocol Tour. And I bumped the, the player I played in the first round and in the third round. Uh, they were both players from Edinburgh. So I looked them up when I got here. And uh, that was sort of my, my descent back into Netrunner. So my whole circle of friends when I first moved here, because I didn't know anyone in the city, were all living card game players. And so I got yeah. pulled quite heavily into that. So I, I, was, um, I judged it nationals and euros in the UK for, for Netrunner as well. Okay. So I was was really heavily into it for a while, but I just kind of fell out of love with the competitive side of it. And you know, Arkham came along at just the right time from when I was falling out of love with Netrunner. This new LCG was arriving, which was doing a lot more of what I wanted to explore in in a game. Um, and actually, one of the first yeah. games I got when I was kind of getting more into board games was the Arkham Horror board game. So it was interesting to see them go. tackle that but in a living card game instead. So how, how do you guys feel about the the recent announcement about Netrunner? Um, for, for any of our listeners that don't know, um, it was just about two or three months ago, wasn't it? Um, Fantasy Flight announced that um, that they were discontinuing um, uh, the, the living card game of Netrunner. So uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, gents? Well, um, it's, it's, it's definitely sad news because I know a lot of my friends are... They socialize a lot around the game. You know, a lot of their friends are friends they've made through playing the game. Um, one of my best friends, he met his uh, current girlfriend through the game, uh, and they're now living together. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's a big part of a lot of people's lives, uh, and it's really mm-hmm. sad when that ends. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's where I would be. It's, it's, it's sad when something like this ends. I mean, you know, people will pick up another card game, and, you know, they, you know they'll have fun, yeah. they'll find something else to play. Uh, I think... It was really sad seeing Netrunner, especially, and because it was such a, the the world was so positive, you know, that it, it, it wasn't really a dystopia, this cyberpunk dystopia. There was a lot of utopian elements coming in there, and there was lots of characters you don't often see represented in games were were present there. So it's a sad, it's a, it's sad to see that that ending, and hopefully the things it did are picked up by other games, and it's it's move the scene forward a little bit yeah. how do you feel frank i felt very sad yeah for someone who hadn't played it for about two years and wasn't in any way invested i felt 
deeply sad for the people who I knew who were really invested. And I think I also felt particularly sad that they just rebooted. There was the Corset 2.0 had come out in, I think, in January, and it had sold out in a lot of places. And I met a couple of people who were new to Netrunner, and this was their way in. You know, they they hit the reset button on the game a little bit. Yeah, it, 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 there was a feeling that it was... It, it it wasn't it wasn't winding down really. It felt like it was about to wind back up. <laughs> yeah, they'd fixed a lot of problems and they they'd found this elegant solution that wasn't that they rebooted the game and you lost all of the cards from version one and you had to buy into this new game. They'd done a revised core set that just it just reset some things and it was a chance for new people to get involved in the game. And it was also a chance for experienced players to kind of reassess where they were at and reassess how welcoming they were being. You know, if you were just assuming that everyone owned all the cards, that's kind of dreadful. But if you were like, okay, there could be a huge influx of new players who don't own very many cards. How do we accommodate these new players? Like that was so positive. So I was very sad about about that. Yeah, that that, and you know, it was just sad. I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm going to uh, don my tinfoil hat for a moment, <laughs> if I may. Mm, please and, uh, do, yeah, and, and give you give you both my two cents. I I think that this is all purely to do with um, with licensing, uh, which which it is obviously. Um, but I think it runs a little bit deeper um, than that. In that, I think that um, so for for anyone that I I don't play Magic, but I know a little bit about it, mainly because Josh talks at me about <laughs> Magic a lot. I've, I've only met Josh once, and I already know that about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Josh likes Magic. Um, so one of the things that he um, has pointed out a couple of times when we've been talking is that um, apparently there's been quite a bit of drop off. And the player base for Magic: The Gathering, it's the, the player base is still huge, but it it's not as big as it was. And I think that Wizards of the Coast have taken stock of that, and I think that they're trying to get a couple of other card games on the go. So they've just released Transformers, and I think that they perhaps have plans to um, to uh, bring. Uh, Netrunner back into the fold because of course when it first came out it was a trading card game that they released. Yeah, yeah. And and for anyone who, who doesn't know, yeah. um it it was it was always licensed by Wizards, Wizards of the Coast back to Air Fantasy Flight Games. So Wizards mm-hmm. still have the mechanics of the game, although the, the the Android IP still belongs to FFG. Yeah. So like um Wizards could take the mechanics and put it in another universe of their own creation. I, I don't think that's too tinfoil hatty either. I think like Wizards were, were in, as far as I see it, in a win-win situation. Either they get money from FFG every year for the license, or if they want to make the game themselves and get that money, they they make it so expensive for FFG to renew the license that they can do it themselves. So it, it to my mind, they make money either way yeah. with that. So. Some people have said, well, why would they spend all the cost developing a new game when they could just keep getting the money from FFG? But maybe they think that they can develop a game cheaply enough that they're going to make more money for themselves. So, like, go where the money is, and it, right? It, it, it's so. an interesting mirror to, um, I guess, the position. We talked about Games Workshop a few times. That they found themselves mm-hmm. in a bit of a hole a few years ago, didn't they? I guess all through the early noughties, yep. they were just digging deeper and deeper, <laughs> where they didn't respond at all to other 
um, war games appearing, and they just assumed yep. they were too big to fail, and people would always be buying their stuff, which manifestly wasn't the case because you know they, they yeah, were struggling. It's the Tom Tom Kirby years, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's it, and it's been interesting getting back into to forty k a little bit uh, with eighth coming out, and just seeing what a difference you know a, a different philosophy has had there that they kind of. They want to help people yeah. get into their hobby, and they want to help people play the games. Yeah, I I listen. One other podcast I listen to about games is the Team Covenant podcast. They're based in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and run a game shop. And they repeatedly bang on about the barriers to entry to games. And so, obviously, that's huge for an LCG that's been out for a long time. But it's even bigger for war games, yeah. where you need to paint your models and assemble your models and buy the right amount of models so that you have an army and things like that. And it seems like Games Workshop have finally wised up to that a certain amount, yep. like-ish. There's, there's a new, um, there's a part work coming out <laughs> uh, called, confusingly enough, called Conquest, uh, although it has nothing to do with the LCG. Uh, and that's, that's really back down at a yeah. very basic level. There's some videos up on the YouTube channel, and it, it, it's even to the point it tells you which way around to hold the clippers when you're clipping stuff off the frames. But that's right, yeah. But, you know, I th- if, if, if they want new players in the game, that's the kind of stuff they need to be doing. And and you know what? See, I, because I've tried, to, um, I've tried to pick up a couple of copies of Conquest because, I mean, £2 for three Space Marines and a pot of paint and some other bits and pieces is, is not to be scoffed at. <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I saw someone make the, the joke on Twitter. Uh, it's, a, yeah. it's a bargain for more paint I'm never going to use. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. But do you know what? You, you can't get it anywhere. Uh, the the Conquest magazine. Yeah, yeah. It's selling little hotcakes. So they're on to something there, I think. And it's the, the theory is that... Um, if you subscribe to Conquest, you get all the issues. By the end of it, you're going to have uh, two armies for 40k and a bunch of scenery and stuff to play with. So um, I'm, n- I'm not sure exactly how many issues that is, but it's it's quite interesting to see Games Workshop doing something like that, you know. Is it like one of those serial deals from the 90s? You know, <laughs> collect... 64 tokens and send a check for 5.99 and your tokens you work out that's nine yeah. years of series build it build your own yeah, titanic or something well i had um when i was a kid i had um uh, how my body works so like by the end of it yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. so you had like a, like a full like little um desk sized model of the human body and all the different layers and all that, but um, yeah, and you got a different organ every week, every month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so this week it's a liver. <laughs> so, I mean, so you can imagine with all the parts in the human body how long that took because they went through the bones, they went through the skin, everything. But um, it's the same idea, isn't it? Like they they lure you in with a couple of cheap ones, and then they hike the price right up. But as far as collecting a, an army for a Games Workshop game goes, it's a pretty cost-effective way of doing it. Yeah. Maybe maybe for these games where you actually need to collect for quite a long time, it's actually worth breaking it down into very manageable little segments. Because if you said to someone, oh, you want an army, it's going to cost you X hundred pounds, and these are all the models you need to buy, you just go, well, there's no way I can do that. So you just start them small. Yeah. There's a great uh, uh, Scottish-based Radio 4 comedy called Fags, Mags and Bags. <laughs> uh, 
fucking setting. Is it Lenzi it's setting? Uh, it's great. I, if, if, if you come across it on the radio, listen to it because it's fantastic. But there's an episode of that. It's, it's all set in a corner shop. And there's, an, there's, a, there's an episode where the arc is about someone's been collecting a build the Titanic part work. And it's taken a, I think after her husband died, it was the one thing that kept her going. And she's been collecting it all for six years. But then they don't get the last issue in stock, which has the band playing on the deck of the Titanic as it sinks. Mm-hmm. It has to like phone up this one guy. He lives in a mansion who, who runs every single part work magazine. <laughs> That's tragic. Like missing out the last one as well after all that. Because <laughs> they have like 50 issues, some of them. They go on forever. Oh, yeah, and you add up how much they cost, and yeah, it's thousands yeah. of pounds. <laughs> it's, a, it's a bracket for sure. Um, so I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you guys is going back to the Drawn to the Flame podcast, um, which, um, if we haven't already mentioned, is a podcast that Frank and Peter run with a focus on the Arkham Horror living card game. Um, and... In, in a lot of ways, you guys are sort of polar opposite of what we do in that uh, your content's very focused, whereas we're like all kinds of tabletop. And I think so, so sometimes the the issue we have is that we almost have too much to talk about. We're trying to cover a little bit too much. Um, do you guys ever feel that in focusing on one game that you maybe don't have a lot to talk about honestly we've got a list of episodes we want to do as long as you're on <laughs> yeah. uh it seriously it, it's it, it's we just get more ideas i think no matter how focused you are you always have too much stuff and actually with the regular release of stuff there's always something to talk about even if frank and i are feeling a bit uninspired and yeah. we can you know we can look at it and we've got a like a, a list of questions we can spend a bit of time we haven't looked at this investigator yet. Let's do an episode focused on that investigator. Mm-hmm. I'm a bit of a completionist. So every time we start any kind of sort of series of episodes on the podcast, I want to finish them off. So we've done episodes that focus on individual investigators that you can play as in the game. And we've done, I think, seven or eight of those. But there are already okay. 21 yeah. out in the game. So... There's already all of those still to do. Like that's another. And Frank yeah. won't let me pick certain investigators because we've done too many of that class. Yeah, I'm oh, so okay. you know, he forces me to go back around the other classes to make sure we've got an even number. And then yeah. similarly, we've done other quite focused topics on, say, traits or things like that. And again, because I'm a completionist in my head, there's all of these other traits that we still need to do. That I every so often I say, Peter, wouldn't it be great if we do a trait episode again? Sort of <laughs> silence on the other end of the line. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, I mean, as you guys have said, that, that there's such there's such a degree of depth to the Arkham Horror card game, and considering it as a game where you're getting regular releases for it, it's um, there. There is so much to talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and we we wanted the podcast to be short episodes that were focused. That was kind of our our original brief. We wanted to keep it very, uh-huh. very focused on the game, not sort of talking about our lives or things like that, and and really be that kind of podcast where you maybe listen for half an hour and you think about a very particular topic and then you're done. And that means that we can only cover short amounts of ground every episode and uh, sort of by its nature, we're very focused as a result. So every time we do yeah. an episode like that, it's sort of going back to our core principles about 
let's pick one question that we're going to ask or let's pick one aspect of this game that we're really going to zero in in that that seems to work i think our listeners like it so yeah yeah and uh, the other the other thing is that we're both we've made our peace with if we pick a subject it we might not cover everything you know if 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 we're looking at an investigator we we might not be exhaustive in every single combo every card that works there uh so we've made a piece where we, we communicate the key points on the faction, on well, whatever it is we're talking about. And then we can trust our, our, our listeners. If they want to explore that further, you know, they can chat to us. We've got a Discord server set up and we've got a Facebook page. And, you know, there's, there's all these areas to dis- discuss the game in a really, really minute level of detail. Yeah. Um, but because we wanted to keep the episode short so you could listen to it in a commute, we've made a piece with not, with not going that, down that quite that far. Yeah. Um, so you've, you've talked a bit about your listeners and you guys are very communicative with them. Um, you mentioned the Discord and then I, th- I think um, you're both on Twitter and, and Reddit as well. Um, so when, when you're picking subjects for um, discussion on the show, are, are a lot of those things that, that your listeners have said they want to hear more about or do you guys have particular things that... Um, that you yourselves know that you want to talk about? I'd say very few things are listener-led. Um, sometimes we've had a listener say, I'd really like you to discuss X or Y, but normally we've already got an episode uh-huh. planned on it. And I think yeah. for us, we only do episodes if we're both up for that topic. So we, we, we'll only do investigator-specific episodes if we both feel we've played that investigator enough to have something to say. And mm. that's why we haven't done all of them. So yeah, normally I would say it's led by us. I mean, we we get a lot of feedback from listeners, but I think it's important with a podcast that you still, certainly it feels that way for us, that you feel that you're the ones in creative control. Um, so I also do live plays on the podcast where I play through scenarios. And what I'll do at that point is ask listeners for guidance of who I should play as, or after a scenario, if I'm spending experience, ask them for tips on what i should do but again like i'm the one who's going to be playing it so and i'm not i'm not someone else's puppet so i I like the conversation around it but i think i still like to be the the final say just just for the reality of i've got to sit and play it and edit it and all of that kind of stuff so yeah yeah so we we also set up a a patreon a little while ago uh, and that's been really successful we've we've got we've got some brand new mics uh recently and they're just fantastic and it's it's really rewarding having people who are keen to join us in what we're doing but one one of the tiers we had on that was we would talk about your deck so it's one of the the higher tiers if people wanted to send us a deck we could do an episode focused around it Mm. and we've had one person who sent us a deck and it's take honestly we've had to apologize to the guy because it's taken us months to get around to it Um, and i think that that shows what it is if it's not an idea we've come up with and one of us has been um pushing to do uh, it's a bit harder to get that momentum up to to talk about it mm. yeah yeah I, th- I i think um you know content creator to content creator it's as, as much as there's a temptation to to do q and a and and uh, as uh, to to use um uh, frank's phrase to have things that are a bit more listener led i think by virtue of the fact that you've garnered a following people want to know specifically about what you think on these things so i think and i mean there, there 
maybe there are people out there where listener-led things work very well for them, and that's fine. But um, I, th- I think, uh, I think you do need to ex- exercise a degree of assertiveness when it comes to what you want to do, don't you? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I said off air to you, I work at a magazine as my kind of day job, and we have a similar attitude there that it's we care about what our readers think but they don't get to choose what's in the magazine. And in fact, they read the magazine because we choose. So, you know, uh-huh. we, we can't let the readers dictate the content. We need to to be selective. And that's one of the things that readers might like. And I think it's the same with the podcast. If you're always waiting for someone else to choose the topics for you, the people who've done the choosing aren't going to be satisfied because it's something they wanted. Whereas they might be surprised if they haven't even had a choice. So... Yeah. yeah. Hopefully that pays off. Yeah. I think so. So um, we're almost out of time, but one of the questions that I wanted to put to you guys um, that I've been hearing a lot of discussion about recently, we actually had a, um, we've got a, an article that's going to be going up on uh, on the website shortly along these lines. As um, how how do you how do you guys feel about the the amount of of content um specifically within the, the world of tabletop gaming that is centered around the the cthulhu mythos and the the Lovecraft <laughs> universe because there's a lot of people saying and you know perhaps justifiably that um perhaps we're at saturation point or have been at saturation point for a while what do you guys think about that um i, I thought you were going to leave it at the amount of content just being created for, yeah because yeah, it's a stunning amount well at first i thought you were going to ask about arkham content and then it went to like full tabletop i was like okay well much bigger then it, luckily it's narrowed down a bit well it, i mean to an extent we'd sort of be out of a job if, if it all disappeared um but i i wait are you getting really... paid for this peter <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's an interesting one it, you notice these these geek things seem to go in cycles don't they because it was it was zombies sort of a decade ago mm-hmm. and you couldn't move for zombie themed stuff um and i th- i think maybe we sort of peaked in terms of of Lovecraft or Mythos flavored stuff now, and maybe we're on the down the downside of that, and whatever. I, I can't imagine what's going to be next. That's 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 appearing. Um, but yeah, it, uh, I think the the properties which there's a lot of things which which slap the name on it, and the, the reason I like I don't play many of the other Arkham board games these days. Because for me, the best implementation of it is Arkham Horror, the living card game. Agreed. Um, and it really captures what I want. The kind of, It's got that bit of pulpy action in it, and it's got the more personal horror in it. And actually, it's also drawing inspiration not just from the obvious Lovecraft stories. Mm. It's, it's picking up like the last cycle for, for Arkham Horror was based on uh, The King in Yellow, so a horror story by... Uh, Robert Chambers, uh, Robert Campbell. No, yeah. Chambers. Campbell or Chambers? Chambers. Chambers. I was right the first time. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it's the, it's the expanded universe, yeah, as it were. Yeah, um, yeah. For, a, for a lot of people that don't know, uh, Lovecraft was very um, was very liberal in allowing other people to use his um, intellectual property and universe. So there's a whole raft of writers that have um, 
written stories in his universe. And vice versa as well. He, he borrowed stuff. Yeah. If, he, if he saw the name of a cool book, he wrote it down and then used it in one of his stories. Mm. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I... I I think it is it is what it is, and some people love it, and um, I don't I don't begrudge them for loving it. Um, I think we're probably past the peak of it, um, and we might see something else starting to saturate us. There's that huge Cthulhu figure, isn't there? There's that <laughs> board game that was kickstarted that has that like three foot tall Cthulhu miniature yeah. as part of it. Uh, Cthulhu that- death may die. Yeah. yeah, death may die exactly. Yeah, and. Uh, there's also two different computer games coming out this year, which obviously isn't tabletop, but that are both Lovecraft themed. Uh, for for ages with none available, now there's suddenly two of those, which to my mind is a sign that it's reaching tipping point and kind of spreading into other media. My feeling about it is, if your question had been how did we feel about content just for Arkham Horror, the card game, I would have said if it's a bit slower, I'd be happier. And I gently, that's partly because we have a podcast about the game and we have a lot we want to talk about, but also the the community attitude yeah. of of appetite and of wanting new things and of being hungry for new content all the time, I think is quite unhealthy. And we generally live kind of desperate for the new thing. And I'm probably a bit old fashioned, but I quite like the idea of like actually sitting down and enjoying the cards repeatedly, as opposed to just new pack, new scenario, move on. But I think all of the Cthulhu related stuff is kind of leaping on that as well, that there are clearly people who are desperate for that sense of mystery or exploration and the sort of tingling horror and all of these games feed into that feeling and they get it. Yeah. Um, get rid of them all, burn them all. (laughs) (laughs) Not the answer we expected, but there you go. Right, so that's just about all we've got time for, but very quickly before we wrap up, um, for for people that are interested and drawn to the flame, where should they go? Find us on iTunes, you just search Drawn to the Flame or other podcast providers, and we have a website for the podcast, which is drawn to the flame.blogspot.co.uk because it was a free way of hosting the podcast or you could find us on facebook or twitter or drawn to the flame on there as well or even on patreon www.patreon.com forward slash drawn to the flame this sounds like the end of an episode i'm doing all the, the things yeah it does yeah say. yeah i'm about to spell yeah. out my, my username <laughs> but yeah facebook's a good way of keeping up with what we're talking about and we post all of our episodes on there or like Frank says, just on whatever your favourite podcast app is, we should be there. Peter, Frank, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And for all of our listeners, wherever you are, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Hi guys, it's uh, Josh from the Unlucky Frog Gaming Podcast here. Thanks for listening to us, and now be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for the Unlucky Frog Gaming. Uh, You can also show your support for Unlucky Frog through Patreon. Be sure to check out our website, www.unluckyfrog.com, to find out more. Was that so hard? <laughs> <I'm>, look. <laughs>